Uh, it is my privilege and uh, a joy to introduce to you tonight's keynote speaker. I have been having a fantastic conversation with this young lady, dynamic conversation that we're going to have, so you are all in for a treat to meet and hear from Miss Angel Rich. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about her, and when I say it's a little bit, you'll understand what I mean in a second. Ms. Rich created an algorithm for a stock market to win Goldman Sachs Portfolio Challenge, selling her first marketing plan to Prudential, becoming a founding employee of FINRA, authoring the first ever African-American financial experience study, inventing the top financial literacy product in the world, and named the next Steve Jobs by Forbes at 30. Angel Rich has earned the title of Wealth Pioneer. In 2009, Rich became a global market research analyst for Prudential Financial, where she conducted over 70 financial behavioral studies, including the Obama's Veteran Initiative. During her final year at Prudential, she helped the company's annuities division grow from number 16 in service to number four, helping the company save $6 billion. Billion with a B, of which I asked her, how much did they give you? <laughs> I'll let her give you the answer. It wasn't enough. Rich left Prudential to found the Wealth Factory with a mission to provide equal access to financial literacy to everyone, everywhere via education, technology, games, curriculum, and fintech products. For those who may not know fintech, it's financial and technology combination. If you do anything to automate financial services, that's FinTech. That's what she do. In 2017, she released her first financial literacy mobile game to market, uh, to market titled Credit Stacker. Credit Stacker exceeded 200,000 downloads in 60 countries within two weeks. In addition to climbing the number one, the number one educational app in 14 countries, Credit Stacker has garnered numerous accolades, including top five in 40 on Apple, top 10 in the world by Google, and was named the best financial literacy product in the country by the White House Department of Education and J.P. Morgan Chase. That year, Rich also released her first book, The History of the Black Dollar, with the foreword written by, by Dr. Maya by Dr. Meyer Rocky Moore Cummings. The book takes readers on an economic journey through the history to, to depict the major milestones, historic figures, and upcoming leaders. She was awarded Hamptonian of the Year, HBCU, 30 under 30, Hampton 40 under 40, and Google Top 30 Black Female Founders. In 2018, the United Nations named her one of the top 100 most influential people in African diaspora and, I'm sorry, diaspora, and one of five icons, I went to school, and one of five icons. In 2019, she released her second book, Black Women Politics, and was honored as a historic figure at the Sandy Springs Slave Museum. She is most proud, if all that doesn't count, 
She is most proud to be vice chair of the Financial Literacy Council after an appointment from the mayor of DC designing the financial literacy recommendations for the city. In 2020, she graduated from the NASDAQ Entrepreneurship Center, Hill Vets led program, and 1871's first accelerator for women in FinTech. She also co-created the MIT Hacking Racism Challenge for hashtag Black Tech Matters in partnership with MIT and the largest black hackathon in the country with over 1,500 participants and 100 partners, including 20 HBCUs. Later that year, she strategically launched Credit Rich, an artificial intelligence fintech app that rounds up users spare change to pay bills intelligently and increase their credit scores in partnership with Experian, making it the first black American company to have an institutional partnership with one of the three top credit bureaus. She for real. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, like I said, just some of the things she's done. Please welcome Angel Rich to the stage. Good evening, everyone. Hello, okay, this one works too. All righty, hello 757. I would like to start off by first giving honor to God and the great Hampton University. The real HU is here now. <laughs> Alrighty, so also would like to uh, give reference to the elected officials that's here and all of the sponsors, um, the council members, and of course, Blair, um, you've worked so diligently on this and we've been in conversation for so long and then COVID came along. So it is such an honor to be here with you tonight. So, to kick things off, I would love for everyone to raise their hand if they would like to die broke. Anyone? Well, some people say yes, some people say no, but the answer really isn't important. What is important is that you are able to make a choice. And as a fourth generation Washingtonian that graduated with $180,000 worth of debt and a full 44 credit score, I know firsthand that not everyone gets the opportunity to make that choice. Did you know that the little three digit number that you graduate high school with could potentially make or break your life? If you could go back to when you were 18 and think more about your finances and your credit to put yourself in a better position today, would you? So I wanna take you guys on a journey. One that explains how financial literacy and entrepreneurship and black branding goes hand in hand. And for me, it starts at Hampton University. You see, one day I walked into the library and a group of people asked me to lead them in a Goldman Sachs portfolio challenge. 
And I said, I don't know anything about the stock market, and I've never done a portfolio challenge. And they said, we're confident you can lead us. And I said, okay. And from there, we happened to be in the library. They walked me over to the computer, and they showed me the stock market. I ended up reverse engineering the stock market and coming up with an algorithm for it. We did positive 2% when the market did negative 2%, and this was in 2009. And I asked myself, who would ever figure this out? There needs to be some type of game to allow people to live out their financial life so that when they actually get the money in real life, they know what to do with it and they don't stumble over it. So I'm going to be dropping diamonds as I go along, right? Black diamonds, also known as onyxes. Shout out to any onyx people here from Hampton. I'm onyx seven. Um, as you are going along in life, God will provide you with a vision. He does not place anything in your heart or mind that you cannot actually achieve. And the saying that says, if you believe it, you can achieve it is true. He does not put dreams in your mind as simple commentary. They are blueprints for your life. And you have to release what I call circumstantial visions. You can't have a vision from God that says that you are going to be a billionaire one day, but then you turn around and tell God that you're from bad news, so you don't know how you're going to get there. You can't have God say that you're going to have more land than your eyes can see but then you turn around and tell him you've only ever lived in a brick building. You have to release the circumstantial vision so that you can actually transform into your vision. And a lot of that, I didn't understand when I first started off. So I received this vision, but I say, nah, I'm way ahead of the market. I can't do that just yet. How am I going to create a financial literacy mobile game? Hmm. Well, at the time, the only thing education technology was Blackboard. Uh, this was 2009. And so gamification didn't even become a word until 2012 when Wharton invented it. And then it wasn't until 2014 that the financial literacy standards started to come out for people to actually care about financial literacy. So I was way ahead of the market. But I still had the vision. That Fast forward to spring of my senior year. Once again, I walk into the School of Business, and a group of people say, hey, we want you to do the Prudential Case Competition. And I say, oh, I already won Goldman Sachs. I don't need to do any more competitions. And they say, oh, Angel, this is life insurance, and it's marketing. Now, here's another diamond. My whole family sells life insurance. If anybody has grown up or been in any family businesses, it tends to be expected for you to continue on that family business. And on one end, I definitely encourage people, if there is a great foundation and that's something that you're interested in, definitely continue that generational wealth in your family business. In my case, my family had went from being government workers to life insurance agents, and they were making pretty good money, but I decided I wanted to own a life insurance company. And I released the circumstantial vision that my family had put on me to achieve this. 
You see, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. And when I wanted to go to college, I was told it was unnecessary, that I was just gonna sell life insurance like everyone else. I tried to join the military and the sergeant called my house and my mother cursed him out. <laughs> and then she came to me and said, and I used to be 100 pounds bigger. So she came to me and she said, if you are willing to join the military to go to college, I'm going to figure out how to pay for it for you. And so that was how I actually ended up being able to go. And then, I, and then she asked me why I wanted to go. And I said I wanted to own a life insurance company. And, you know, forgive my, forgive my language, but she basically said, oh, those Caucasians will never let you in. And once again, if I had maintained, if I had listened to that, instead of having the vision to knock down any doors or any barriers that might be in my way, I would still be in D.C., would not have went to Hampton University, and would not be on this stage speaking to you today. So that's why it's overly important that I'm now in my senior year at Hampton walking in and they're asking me to do this Prudential Case competition. Not only did I do the competition, but we ended up winning first place. And we won $15,000, which still hangs in Hampton University School of Business right now. But even more than that, we came up with a groundbreaking idea of marketing life insurance and financial services products online as well as to youth. They told me that people would never buy life insurance or financial services online. And why focus on youth? Because only old people cared about retirement and finances. So the first time I was in Forbes was actually when I was 22 for winning this competition. We then sold it to Prudential and I was able to pick any job I wanted to at the top life insurance company in the world. So I selected to become a global market research analyst because to this day, it's extremely hard to get into the global market research department of any life insurance company or financial services company, let alone as a young black girl. So that was a huge feat for me to be able to do that. And one of my goals from day one was accomplishing the African-American financial experience study. Because you see, I had a vision since I was a child to help break down the barriers for the African-American community. Because in growing up with my parents and selling life insurance, we spent our weekends in people's offices and in their homes. And I didn't understand why I couldn't go to the park. And so, okay, you sold the policy already, but we have to come to these people's houses every weekend so you can help them manage their money? Like, it just didn't make sense to me. And they were government workers. Some of them, you know, made $100,000 a year, but they didn't know how to manage their money. It boggled my mind. So when I finally get to Prudential from day one, I set that goal and we are able to accomplish it. And it ends up being the first study ever conducted by a financial services company to analyze the financial behavior of blacks. And once again, I want to share with you all the audacity of my confidence, which is the theme for this evening. Because when they denied me this study, I didn't just simply take it lying down. They had me working on Asian Americans, 
Hispanic Americans. Then they went into the LGBT community. And I said, what's next? Are we doing deaf people and left-handed people? When, when are we doing the African American community? Help me understand what is going on here. And you know what they told me? They told me black people didn't speak a different language. I said, oh, okay. I see what we have here. Now, for any of you all that follow me, I have a theme called Be a Trojan Horse. And I'll briefly explain that real quick. You see, when they decided to take down Troy, they didn't just walk in, sauce in, and say, hey, we're here. We're here to destroy you. No, they built a horse. They climbed inside. They set it outside. They moved the ships back. And they let them think that they left and left them a gift. They opened the gates. They saw the horse. They wheeled it right on in. They said, oh my gosh, we're so big and powerful that they got scared and they left. And look, they don't want any problems, so they left us a gift. We're going to bring this in. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to get drunk around it. And then we're going to fall asleep. By the time they woke up from their slumber, Troy was already in flames. You see, because when I destroy you, I want to make sure I burn your entire city down. I want to make sure that they write books about how I destroyed you. I want to make sure that people visit from other countries to come see the museum about how I destroyed you. So I in no way am going to let my left hand know what the right hand is doing. I'm going to keep that to my chest. So when I heard that black people didn't speak a different language, I went on a mission. And I gathered up 30 mentors. Because, you know, they had to teach the little black girl, right? So I use that to my advantage. The power of underestimation. Let people talk about you right in front of your face. Oftentimes, we're in such a rush to prove our knowledge and prove who we are. Let them talk about you and use all of that to your advantage. And then you could throw it right back at them. I'm just reiterating what you said when you thought I was an idiot and wasn't listening. It's as simple as that. So I went around, I gathered up these 30 mentors, and every single day on my lunch break, I would go see one of the different mentors. I would go ask them their life story. Oh, please teach me, wise one. And then at the end of the meeting, I would bring up some question that I had as to why the African-American study was not getting done. And each time, I would take whatever the response of the last mentor said, I would go to the next meeting, and then I would add on to that question as to what they said. And then slowly, I broke down every single barrier. Till it got all the way to, they had me meet with this guy, and he was Hispanic, but you wouldn't know he was Hispanic. And there was still this question of, Black people don't speak a different language. And I said, allow me to share something with you. I was raised by my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother was raised by a slave. And he said, oh my gosh, you have a direct connection to slavery. I said, yes. And don't, don't let me shock you, 
but most black people do. It's not a secret. And that is how I got the African-American study done. I take the time to fully explain that to you all because that was a historic moment for this entire country. There were not black people like that in life insurance commercials and financial services commercials before. Thank you. And we were able to prove that black people own life insurance at an equal or higher value than any race. And the, yes, and the results were so groundbreaking, they thought I did something wrong. And the Life Insurance Market Research Agency duplicated the research study in order to see if the results were accurate. Once they came back as accurate, it then became the blueprint for the entire financial services industry for how to market to blacks. So every time I turn on the TV and I see black people in life insurance commercials and financial services commercials, I think about that moment. I want you all to dream audaciously. I want you to have the audacity of confidence. I want you to walk in a room and they just shiver at the thought of what you're about to say. Okay? So it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Oh, so you, you would think I've earned a little bit of respect after that, right? Nah, I guess I just, you know, I just got lucky with those few billion. So I said, oh. I said, y'all want me to see, you want me to do this on purpose. You, wanna, you want me to tell you I'm going to do it and then show you I'm going to do it. Okay. And you, and you want it to be something that you wasn't even thinking about. Okay. Because you wasn't thinking about the African-American study, but okay. All right. So I go on out to annuities, I go on out to Connecticut, that's where they send the geniuses. Um, and so I go on out there and I'm bored. And they give me this job and I look at the, the work I'm supposed to do and it literally would have taken me two weeks to do what they was asking me to do for an entire year. And you know, I can entertain, but I'm not that entertaining. <laughs> So I was like, I, I got to do something about this. There's no way I can just sit here and just do this, right? So once again, I'm on my mentor thing and I'm going around, but this time I got a different mission. This time I want to figure out what the problem is because no one's perfect. Surely you all have asked me to come here for a reason. And it was the first satellite research office. I, I started with a blank sheet of paper on the wall and I designed the entire department. I went around to everybody and then I started noticing six different people was working on e-signatures. So the point of this story is for you all to know how to create a lane for yourself. Don't, don't let somebody open up a lane for you. You better act like you got a Range Rover and go off-road, okay? And so that was the job description. I go around, I'm talking to everybody, six different people working on e-signatures. I say, huh, that can't be profitable. Like, why does it take six different people? I could maybe see two, but six doesn't make any sense. I then go around and realize there's a ton of problems that the same people are working on because this is a very siloed organization. Okay, well, I then volunteer. I get my boss to approve it. I then volunteer to do a research study on problem resolution. At the time, the industry standard was three days and Prudential was doing it in six days. And I discovered through my research that nobody else even thought to research that if you solve problems in two days, 
satisfaction will go up by 70% and thus saving $6 billion. Now, why do I share this story? Because the number scared my boss. She told me to put the paper away and go back to that job description that she had originally gave me. Right? And I said, huh? I just showed you $6 billion. Now, what did I say before? Every boss has a boss. Okay? Every boss has a boss. So I sat back and I waited. And her boss worked in a different office, and he would come up every quarter. And I strategically waited right before he was coming up to give her the report. I'm trying to give her a layup. Like, here you go. Here's your promotion. But no, she was too scared. So y'all know what I did? Okay. So I knew that she normally came in at 8. And I knew that he normally came in at 7.30. So I was there at 7. And I taped the report to my wall. I'm gonna repeat that again. I printed off the report and then I taped it to my wall. So he comes in, he reads the report, I highlighted the $6 billion. <laughs> he comes in oh and I left a copy on the side of my desk for him he comes in sees it picks the copy up and he says if this can save us six billion dollars why isn't it on the desk of every executive in the company and I said I don't know ask her <laughs> he waited for her to come in I could hear him cursing her out through the wall. And by the end of the week, it was on the desk of every executive in the company. They gave me a five out of five, which is extremely hard to get at Prudential. Only 100 of 20,000 employees get that every year. They gave me a Presidential Achieve Award. They put me on the CEO track and they gave me a double promotion. Now, I'm, and my mom's still calling them Ron, but to his point, to um, Daryl's point earlier, um, the figure that they gave me was $30,000. $30,000. And as I was explaining, I've already shared a couple of stories. I made $6 billion that year. I didn't even count the African-American study money, which I'm sure was double or triple that or the, Afro, the uh, Obama's Veterans Initiative study that I led, which I actually did here, by the way. Uh, they sent me down here for three weeks to do that study. So I did, wasn't even counting that money, but $30,000? So even with that, I asked them for $175,000 for my church. We were going on a mission trip to Africa, and I was gonna put everybody in Prudential T-shirts, I was gonna fly a helicopter over, and it was, woo, Prudential loves black people! <laughs> And they were like, nope, we can't show bias. Show bias? What? You just did a whole study on, what? So I said, okay, all right. Mind you, they had just given me a full ride to Wharton. I get to Africa. I go on a trip with my church. 
I get to Kenya and I meet a little boy in a Wharton t-shirt. And I'm seeing this little boy every single day for three weeks in this Wharton t-shirt. And it's driving me nuts. And soon I'm like, he don't have no other clothes. I'm like avoiding the route where he live at. I'm like, I can't keep seeing this little boy. Ugh. And then I realized the problem isn't the little boy. The problem is me. And I need to quit my job to create equal access for financial literacy for everyone everywhere. Because this little boy in his t-shirt, no matter how smart he becomes, will probably never have the opportunity to go to Wharton, let alone leave Kenya or maybe even Salawa, where I met him at, where if you were to try to Google it on a map, you wouldn't even be able to find it. So I realized that this little boy, what was the difference between me and this little boy? Our geographic location where we were born? How is that fair? So his whole life is predetermined because of where he's born? And then at the very least, he doesn't even have access to the knowledge? My God. So I decided to quit my job to create the first financial literacy mobile game on the market. We called it Credit Stacker. It grew to become the number one education app in 14 countries, top five in 40 countries and was named the best financial literacy product in the country by the White House Department of Education, J.P. Morgan Chase. Thank you. And because this is a story of confidence, I'm gonna share another one with you here. There was a time where um, we had raised about $10 million for a credit stacker. We were in a program and it was out in California and it was, um, I was talking to somebody earlier about Village Capital, it was with Village Capital and we have raised $10 million. And then we get this phone call while we're in California. We get this phone call from Buffalo and they say, hey, careful. <laughs> I'm waiting in the story. Okay. <laughs> we get this call from Buffalo. <laughs> And Buffalo says, hey, we got the world's largest business competition, 43 North. We're excited that you've applied, 13,000 applicants. You're applicant number one. Y'all follow me? You're applicant number one. Okay, let me explain something. Top eight gets uh, half a million dollars, and I believe it's top three gets a million dollars. If you win top three, you, your company gets valued somewhere around 20 million, okay? We had raised 10 million on a $10 million valuation. We wasn't gonna take the whole 10 million, I just like to oversubscribe. And, and then I was gonna select who I wanted, okay? So our lawyer, because we get this phone call, he tells us to get rid of all the money, turn down all the deals, because Buffalo and 43 North is saying we have the number one application in the world. So how are we not gonna come in the top three, okay? And mind you, up until this point, I hadn't really lost the competition. If I walked in the room, please believe I'm winning, okay? Just, just fact. So um, we get there, and you all can look this up on Google. You can look this up on YouTube. We get there, I pitch on the stage, they tell me, that I gave the best pitch in the history of 43 North. It's on YouTube, okay? 
I go back to my dressing room. Forbes and Black Enterprise comes to the dressing room. And they say, hey, we know you're winning top three. We just don't know if it's one, two, or three. But let's go ahead and pre-interview you so for us to drop this article. I say, okay. The Buffalo Times comes over. He says, hey, I'm going to interview you ahead of time. I'm hoping you're going to be the winner this year. I say, okay. Now, as y'all can see, I'm very connected with God, right? That night, that night, I get a phone call from one of the judges at 3 a.m. in the morning. And he tells me that I need to come to his hotel room or prepare not to win the next day. I'm crying. My chief strategy officer is in the room. I'm halfway getting dressed, but I'm like, what the heck? So I called my mother, 3 a.m. in the morning. I called my mother. I said, Mom, I don't know what to do. I said, this sounds like a crazy situation, but I've come so far, and this man is telling me if I don't come to his room, I'm not going to win tomorrow, and he's the only black judge. So I know they're going to listen to him. Okay? Somebody, somebody was asking me earlier about access to capital. It's a lot of things that happen within the tech world that, that needs to be more in the light. So my mother says, nah, I don't think you should go. And, you know, if that's how you got to get it, I don't think you should go. And I say, you know what? You're right. And I ended up not going. Okay? Still, the next day, and I still end up coming in the top nine, but not the top eight. And as I go to go onto the stage, God says to me, hey, brace yourself, fix your face. You're not about to win this. And I turned to my chief strategy officer and I tell her what God said. And she was like, what? They said we had the best pitch. I was like, God just told me we're not about to win. Fix your face. And so, uh, and God had told me, it's going to be rough. You're about to go through a very rough period, but I promise it's going to be greater on the other side. Okay? That was the message I received. I went through that. My lawyer at the end ended up going over to Buffalo, yelled at everybody. The mayor of Buffalo came over and apologized to me on behalf of 43 North. This is how crazy of a situation it was. At the end, a girl, a white girl, came to my dressing room, bright red. She was like, I'm sick of this. I was like, what you sick of, girl? What's going on? <laughs> she was like, no woman has ever come in the top eight in the history of 43 North. I was like, what? She was like, yeah, we were all sitting in the back and we were rooting for you. And the next day, the Buffalo Times wrote an article about how no woman had come in the, in the top eight. Okay, where am I going with this? All right, so that was 2016, okay? Fast forward to 2017, and I win top 30 black female founders by Google. And then I get named the next Steve Jobs by Forbes magazine. And my mentor took the article to the governor of New York 
and got the president of 43 North fired. Yes. So it all ended up coming full circle for me. And that piece about how God said it was going to be so much greater. Oh, let me tell you how much greater God has made life for me. You know, sometimes people don't realize that they hold on to something for too long and God might be trying to push you in a different direction. Okay. So fast forward to 2018 and life is going really well. The United Nations named me one of the top five most influential people of the African diaspora and things are just churning, churning, churning. And then I started getting this message from God around June 2018 and he start, he just keeps saying, wait, wait, wait. And I'm like, what I'm waiting on, Lord? And so I used to have a condo down here um, by Buckrow Beach. And I said, okay, I'm going to just go down to Hampton for two months and just sit in my condo and wait. Okay? So after about two months, I was like, okay, God, what's up? What, what am I waiting on? And he still kept going, wait. So I was like, um, so then I got, um, uh, Capital One asked me to do something in Delaware. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to wait, but I'm going to wait in Delaware while I'm on the stage. And then, you know, you can just tap me whenever you're ready, you know, and I wasn't listening, okay? January 3rd, 2019, I break my spine. And I end up paralyzed for seven weeks and on bed rest for three months. And God was like, I told you to wait. I told you to sit still. And so that ended up being a very big moment in my life of reflection. And God did want me to wait. And in that moment, I decided to transition from credit stacker and ended up coming up with credit rich. And if it was not for that waiting period of me slowing down and not just trying to run, 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 run what I thought was best, instead of listening to the message and the vision that he was imparting on me, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So I ended up coming up with Credit Rich. Credit Rich was an audacious dream. There had never been a black company to partner with a credit bureau. To even think of something like that, you sound crazy. So I sat back and I said, how can I be a billionaire? Hmm. You know, in 2019, after I broke my back, I won't say the name of the company, but I ended up getting offered $350 million for Credit Stacker. And they said it so casually. And with them saying it so casually, I said, huh, that, that, you didn't strain to say that. So what is it worth? So I went to go see one of my mentors who um, owns a big gas company. He's worth about $60 billion and he lives at the top of a mountain. It takes two hours to be able to drive to him an hour alone just on the mountain. And so I get to him and I say, how much of this do you own? And he say, I don't know, how far can you see? 
I say, I thought so. <laughs> and so I asked him, I tell him my dilemma. I asked him, do we think I should take it? And he looked at me like I was discussing Abe Lincoln pennies. And he said, Angel, tell me what you really want to do. It takes the same amount of time to make a million dollars as it does to make a hundred million, as it does to make a billion. So why not focus on the billions? And I said, hmm. <laughs> I felt like I was playing with sandpaper after that. Like, what am I doing with my life? Am I, am I joking with myself? Am I having a circumstantial vision on my life? Like, nah, let me dream bigger. And so I sat back, I went and I analyzed everything, and I said, who's having the biggest acquisitions? Who's having the biggest IPOs? I realized it was FinTech. I said, hmm, I'm already in that space. That's perfect. I said, hmm, what's missing in the market? I realized people needed help with their credit. I said, huh, I'm already in that space. That's perfect. But what, what's different? What am I missing? I realized that people needed actual help. I said, it's almost like they want me to do the work for them. Then I said, I got it. Why don't I just do the work for them? So for the first time ever, we're doing the work for you. We've streamlined mobile banking, credit reports, and your online payments in one app. In one app. That doesn't exist anywhere else. So we are extremely proud to be in partnership with Experian, as well as FICO. Not only are we the first black company to partner with a credit bureau, but we're also the first tech company, period, that Experian has co-innovated a product with. They are not on Credit Karma. So we're excited about that. We're also excited to have the FICO partnership. So our credit scores update in real time every five seconds. This is extremely important because I'm sure many of you have incurred inquiries in the past from checking your credit score. Well, with us, you are able to check it every 30 days without penalty. And it's your real, actual score. We've also created our own credit report, so you don't have to guess to be able to interpret it to be able to figure out what's going on with it. We've also created a feature where if you want to help uh, Blair's nephews and nieces out, just making this up, you're able to give them your spare change to help them, you know, go to Hampton University. <clears throat> so, <laughs> all of these various different things help to continue to go along the way. And then on top of that, we're integrating Credit Stacker into it. And then we also have the Wealthy Life Financial Literacy Curriculum that goes from birth to retirement with 12 interactive modules that we've also turned into what we call GEMS, Granular Education Modules. There are these 10-minute segments of financial education to help you transform your skills. So by the time you have the entertainment from Credit Stacker and the actual functionality from Credit Rich and the knowledge from Wealthy Life, it is impossible, impossible for you not to have the proper financial education to truly take hold of your life and to be able to transform your life. Thank you. So that is what we are on a mission to do. And I would be remiss if I did not also talk about history of the black dollar. So another diamond I'm going to drop here. As I was going through my struggle and I got turned down by 43 North, 
One month before I got named the next Steve Jobs, I released my book, History of the Black Dollar, because I refused to take the conversation of lack of access to capital laying down. I don't know how many of you uh, know, to this day, there's less than 100 black women to raise over a million dollars for tech companies. The figure is 0.02%. I'm blessed to be number 37, but it wasn't always uh, that, that time. So I created History of the Black Dollar because I realized that our economic history was neglected from our history pages. You know, how many people know that Booker T. Washington wrote a book called Negroes in Business in 1907? One hand. Two hands. Now I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you read the diary of Anne Frank. Oh, a lot more hands, right? I wonder why. Well, it just might be because it's mandated across the country. Now tell me the book of a child slave or of the Jim Crow era that is mandated. Oh, there isn't one. Hmm. Hmm. So when I'm speaking at Harvard University School of Education, and I'm asking people to raise your hand if you know that the Industrial Revolution was paid for by cotton off of the back of free slaves because they were receiving it for free and they were able to sell cotton at a higher quality than the rest of the country. And Harvard School of Education is unaware of that. How can we be on the same page as a country if we are not reading from the same book? And I truly believe the Holocaust Museum was my favorite museum growing up. I used to go to it every year. And in 2016, when there was the, the, the only, I'm, I'm a little young, so the only sort of uh, Jewish uprising that I've seen in my lifetime was in 2016. And so I saw everybody corralling around the Jewish community. And I said, this is so interesting. Like, why is it that everybody is quick to help the Jewish community for something that happened four years in another country, but not something that happened 400 years in our country? It, it, it confused me. And I believe it is because of the diary of Anne Frank. Because when you think about the Jewish community, you relate to little Anne. You think about her in the closet and in the attic. You, you, you empathize with her. But you don't have that for the black community. It's almost like the, the, black, the black community knowledge of the Native American community. Think about how much Native American knowledge we know. So if, we are, if, we don't, if, we're not on, if we're not reading from the same book, if we're not all being educated about the same subject, I promise you, it's not all racism. There is a level of education that needs to happen for us to be able to have financial agriculture, for us to be able to come together. So I see this history book as an imperative, not just to the black community, but to the American community, so that we can all come together and understand our economic history as a united front. Yes. So to all the schools and elected officials that's out here, I hope you guys are truly hearing this 
And I already know, I was on the, uh, the board of 1619, so I already know that the state of Virginia is very interested in history of the black dollar. And I believe that that is how we are going to be able to close a lot of the wealth gap. We simply have to be able to come together in understanding of what we need to do as a united front for the black dollar and for America economy in general. Last but not least, last but not least, I would like you all to think to yourself, if you had all the money in the world, if you had your house, you had your kids, you had everything you could possibly want in life, what would you then go do for free? You don't gotta answer out loud, but I want you to think about that to yourself. Because while you're sitting right here in whatever position that you're sitting in, I want you to make the audacious goal to go accomplish your dream, to go out there and decide what, how you want your story to end. Don't let your story be written for you. You are, it's never too late. You are never too young or too old to be able to go and start an entire new future for yourself. So if that takes you being a Trojan horse, if that takes you navigating different avenues, whatever it is that you need to do, I want you to reach deep within yourself, look in the mirror, and have the audacity of the confidence to accomplish it. Thank you all so much for having me. It's been an honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Angel Rich. All right, so what we're gonna do right now is give everyone in the audience an opportunity to ask Ms. Rich a question. If you have one, raise your hand, I'll come to your table and you can ask a question. Anybody? Looking for the first hand. You know it takes one person to break the In the diet. back left. In the back left, okay. State your name and your question. Well, my name is Corey Young. Um, I was calling, I mean, I was, I want to ask um, about your apps again, because I want to get all of them so I can take advantage of it. Absolutely. So Credit Stacker is available on Google Play and iOS. Um, it's similar to Candy Crush. Um, we reverse engineered the Fair Isaac Credit Reporting System. So instead of swapping around candy, you swap around credit types to be able to pay off your bills and achieve a high credit score. And it really does help to uh, increase financial literacy. Financial literacy rates go up by 25% after an hour and uh, by 42% after 12 weeks. Um, credit Rich is available on Google Play. We are working on the iOS version and will be out later this year. That is in partnership with Experian and FICO. We round up users' spare change to pay your bills intelligently and optimize your credit scores as fast as possible. You can also check out our books on Amazon, History of the Black Dollar, Black Woman Politics, and Wealthy Life Financial Literacy Textbook. Another question, anyone? Okay, your name and a question. Um, yes, my name is Deborah Harris. And um, my question is, 
What strategy would you use to override critical race theory? If it was up to me, what I would literally do, and I'm looking for this opportunity, I would gather all of the various different leaders together from all of the various different sides, and I would lock us in a room for a week together. And I'm going to first start by hearing everybody's problems. I want you to tell me all of your issues, okay? And then I'm going to send out a survey once you give me your issues, and I'm going to quantify them. So that it's not he said versus she said, or this person is more powerful than this person. I'm going to quantify them. And let's, let's rank them. Because the, the survey might tell me, at the end of the day, you just don't want your kids to know that white people own slaves. Okay? That just might be what the survey says. Or it might be that you're concerned about something else. I don't know, but I'm not going to assume. So from there, I'm then going to come up with, okay, what can we agree on? What are the topics that we can agree should be taught? And then from there, we need to dive into the breadth and the depth of those specific subjects and saying, okay, we can go here with this or we can go here with that. Then I'm going to outline that. Then we're going to take a step back and then we're going to meet with just the black constituents, the black representatives, not necessarily what I call the new woke or the hoteps. But, you know, just the, the black constituents, okay? And let's throw some civil rights leaders in there as well because we need them too, okay? Then we're going to go to them with the plan that we've come up with and we're going to say, are we missing anything? Are there any gaps that's in here that needs to be included? We're going to hear what they have to say. We're going to have them rank how important are the things that's missing. Then we're going to go back to the other group and say, hey, the black constituents feel real strongly about this. That's where we're going to spend our time debating and fighting. But at least we have gotten to a good 80% mark of where the content needs to be. From there, we can have some very factual discussions about that 20% that might be in that gray area that they might not want to put in. Maybe we end up agreeing to a good 10% of it with the contingency plan that with more knowledge included, we will continue to include that. And by the way, obviously I spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? Um, <laughs> when I wrote History of the Black Dollar, just so that everybody knows, I didn't, just, I didn't just decide to wake up and write it. I was actually going through a period where I didn't have much money, I didn't have any electricity at all, and I started rereading black history books by candlelight and by the streetlight that was coming in through my window. And as I was reading the books and all these conversations were happening, I realized, okay, some people got a point here. I can't find an actual black history book. There were a lot of autobiographies. There were a lot of thought pieces. There were black history books that were written by non-black people, but I couldn't find an actual black history book that went from beginning to end and included everything. So I wrote it. It's as simple as that. And then we launched it with the Congressional Black Caucus with Dr. Meyer uh, Rockingmore Cummings. So it's currently taught, uh, one more thing I'll say, it's currently taught in schools and in uh, HBCUs as well as it's available in libraries. And you all know how rough 
uh, the state of Illinois can be. Um, I forgot Martin Luther King's quote, but it said something like, I've never been to a more segregated place until I came to the city of Chicago. Something like that, right? So I had a good friend that was in Chicago, and she asked Chicago to put it in their library. And they turned their nose up and was like, no. And she was like, I'm going on a trip. When I come back, I expect to see this book in the library. I was like, okay, gangster. And so uh, from there, the heads of the state of Illinois library system did a research study on history of the black dollar. And they found that it was the most unbiased book that had been written on black history and the most factual. And there had been no other book written like it. And if there had been, it had not been written since the 90s and not, since a black, not by a black person. And then they recommended it to go in every library across the country. So this book truly is special, and we are working with the administration on it, and I do hope and plan for it to be in every American history class across the country. All right, we have another question for you. Please state your name and your question, and I'll get to you next. Okay, hello. Um, my name is Sabrina, I'm 13 years old, and I also have a business here, so I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to um, take in all this. <laughs> Taking all this wisdom, um, I have a, my question is, well, I have two, really, but um, was there multiple business ideas that you had, and then how did you come with come up with that decision that I wanted to be in finance, and um, what age was it really? I oh. love your question, young lady. So I'm gonna give it to you in bullet points. Okay, first, I started my first company when I was um, 10 years old. And so I started by making greeting cards for my, oh, no, was I 13? No, 11. I was 11. I started as my mother's secretary at 10, and then I quit to start my own company at 11, <laughs> um, selling custom-made greeting cards, okay? And then I started paying taxes at 14. Um, I started working at Burger King. And the reason, I'm telling you this for a reason. I purposely started working at any job that would let me work as young as possible so that I could get as much business experience as possible. So I wasn't, I didn't want to learn how to make fries. I wanted to learn how to run Burger King. So I would get close to the managers and I would ask them for their manager manuals. I would ask them about what schools they went to and I would study everything that it took to be a manager at the different jobs that I worked at. So I did Burger King, Wendy's, Finish Line, ADT, Alarm Systems, anything and everything they was hiring, I went and worked for them. Okay, um, then I grit my teeth on fundraising because you learn a lot about sales and marketing through fundraising. So all those community organizations that's at your school, go ahead and join those as well. Then also being in leadership goes a long way. We got a saying at Hampton, if you're not the president or, vi or VP, don't even put it on your resume, okay? So it's like you wanna aim to, you know, I'm saying aim to try to be the leader of the organization as well so you can get a lot of leadership experience. Now, to your other part of your question. Yes, I come up with a million ideas a minute. A minute, okay? I came up with one the other day as we was driving here that I'm probably actually gonna end up doing. And how I decide what to do is based on a couple of things, and this goes for everybody. And I'll give it to you in quick bullet points. Number one, 
is the problem big enough? Am I experiencing this problem on a daily basis? Are other people experiencing this problem on a daily basis? And if there was a solution to the problem, would somebody run up and grab it out my hands? Okay, number two, do I have a unique solution? Am I doing something that hasn't been done before? Am I doing something that I truly believe could solve this problem? And other people have told me that it can solve this problem, okay? Number three is the market. Is the market big enough? Do people just care about it in Hampton? Do people just care about it in Virginia? Do they just care about it in America? Or do they care about it all across the world? Me, I like global problems. If I'm gonna spend my time on something, I'm, I wanna change the world while I do it, okay? Then after that, it's your team. Now, you can start off by yourself, but this is advice I give to everybody. One of the mistakes I made was thinking I could do everything myself. And, you know, especially as black women, we can do a lot, but we can't do everything. And mansplaining is real. <laughs> so you can spend years of your time trying to recreate the man mold, or you could just put a man right there and make your money faster, okay? And I would not have given this advice five years ago, but now that I'm on the other side, look, you, you can do it if you want to, okay? But I'm just giving you advice. It goes a little bit smoother if you have a man talking to a man. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm just saying put yourself in position, okay? Now, that's your team. So you want to make sure you have a good team. Me, I like making sure that I'm surrounded by intelligent people. I don't, I don't really care what your background is necessarily as long as you are intelligent. Let me know that you are intelligent, okay? And then last but not least, what I call a band. What is your band? You know, my original band was that we were backed by the office of Michelle Obama. So that was the first thing I was able to start being able to drop the mic on. So, you know, you want to like start getting some type of band where you're able to give your pitch and then it's like, bam. If, if you have that kind of combination, then you are on to something. And then last but not least, what I started with, I like to make billions. That's my mindset now. And when you have that mindset, I promise you it's just mindset. You gotta change your mind from focusing on one billion or 10 billion, you know, from focusing on a half a million or just trying to get one million. You gotta tell yourself you are going to be a billionaire. And the moment that I changed my mind into that, it has started to come to fruition. This past week, we raised our company valuation to $150 million. And I still own 70% of the company. So dream as big as possible, surround yourself with intelligent people, get great mentors, and focus on something that you are passionate about, that you believe can change the world, that you have a unique solution for. All right. Thank you. So I know we have to get to the award ceremony, but I want to take maybe about two more questions. And you have one, your name and your question, please. My name is Kenya. Uh, you pretty much answered all the other questions that I had. So my only other question is, girl, can we be friends? <laughs> I'm very open on Facebook, Blair will tell you. <laughs> yeah, so feel free to connect. Okay, your Next name question. and question, please. Good evening, I'm talking to you earlier. My name is Antoine Hines. Um, I'm the president of Veterans Homefront. Well, I'm a president. Okay. So, 
But what I want to ask you is, we talked about black economics, and we talk about changing and closing the wealth gap. What would be your strategies for the room right here, these black people right here, how could we close the wealth gap? Yes, first and foremost, spending... First and foremost, by spending money with each other, okay? There, I'm sure there's some type of database, but when you go to buy something, if you're going to buy a t-shirt, if you have to have a speaker, whatever it is, you know, connecting with Blair or wherever the database is, or just connecting with people in the room and sharing that information and that being the first place that you go to spend money at. Another thing that I would love to see, especially in the 757, all of my elected officials that's here, I would love to see an opportunity where business leaders are coming together to solve problems for the 757. You know, like, I have been screaming for an innovation center here for years. Like, me and this other guy named Jerry Hayes was one of the first two people to come to 757 um, screaming about uh, an innovation center. So, you know, we, we've done a lot around that. But that's something that business leaders can come together. There are tons of schools around here. So I came out of Hampton. So imagine if there was an opportunity where this was an investment meeting and instead I was pitching. And when we were at the $35 million valuation just a month ago, everybody couldn't invest it. And then now we have the $150 million valuation and everybody wins. Then there's some type of structure where maybe we give a little percentage back into the fund where it continues to build on other people. That's something we could be doing for black businesses tomorrow. And I, I never understand why it's not happening yet. Um, so I'm excited. That's one of the reasons I'm even here right now because I believe what Blair is doing is a, is a great catalyst for that. And I believe that you know the more elected officials that we have in here that care about that as well, and then we get more of the universities in, and hey, I think that eventually we're on to something. I'm on the board of 757 Accelerate. So they're doing this at ODU. But I wasn't funded. And people like me don't always get funded. So it would be great if there was something like that here, led by Blair. Next question. Oh, you got one more? Okay. Hi, I'm Sharon Scott. I'm Councilwoman from the North District of the City of Newport News. It's okay. good to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> uh, first, I want to know if you could be my mentor. I don't have a mentor younger than me, but I would like to have you as my mentor. But my important question is, since you said you like global problems, uh, what would you suggest if Mr. Biden came here today, the president, and said, how do I uh, resolve the problem of economic disparity among Americans, especially the black community? Wow. Um, well, fortunately, I, I, I have been working with that for about two or three years now. Um, so I know he does care. Um, I was there earlier this year in Tulsa for um, the Black Wall Street, and that was very nice as well. And he gave a very nice speech um, that was his speech. So... Uh, <laughs> So I, we, we were quite proud uh, of his speech. 
and um, we do believe that he does care about reparations and believes that um, reparations should be something that is issued. Um, I think that, you know, being from Capitol, I'm fourth generation Capitol Hill, so I, and I own a PAC as well. And so um, I believe that it is a matter of kind of both sides being able to have a conversation. And again, I hate to beat a dead horse, but I truly believe that the, uh, the economic conversation is missing on both sides. And they, um, they don't understand um, things that they've contributed or how it impacts present day um, black America. And I think having a explanation, um, cause I'm trying to be very careful with my words as y'all see here. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think having a, uh, a conversation on both sides where we can come to terms and agree with what has happened and what needs to happen. I believe that the president understands that very much so. Um, but I think he has to represent an entire country and he's been trying to do a good job of doing that. And I will say, yes, we can be peer mentors. Uh, one of my good friends is Marcia Dyson, wife of Michael Eric Dyson. So we are peer mentors. She teach me stuff, I teach her stuff, and we love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have, we have one more question, I think, right back here. Hi, everyone. Um, first, I want to say thank you for being here. Everyone here, I've never been in a setting like this and I am so honored. Um, my name is Kiara Smith. I'm actually an artist out here, and I really value religion um, and God. And you mentioned something that was very important to me that I wanted to see if you would elaborate on. You mentioned that it's not too late to change your path, and then also in relation to waiting on God. How important would you say that God is in each individual step that you've been making in your life? Wow, first of all, love the question, thank you. Um, my, my fiance, Carl Hill, would tell you it's extremely important. I sat there and prayed um, when they brought the food out, but not for grace. I did a whole prayer. And so um, I am, Blair would tell you, she asked me yesterday what I was going to talk about. I said, girl, I just say a prayer to God and get on the stage. Okay. And it's true. It's true. Because. I did not get a chance to meet every soul in the building, but God did. So I allow him to guide my words. I don't even know what I'm going to say when I get up here. And I just, I'm a vessel for the Lord. So whatever he tells me to impart is what I say. It's because it's going to help somebody in the room because that's what God is guiding me to say and do. Um, when I turned down the 350 million, God didn't tell me to take it. God told me to get my purse and leave. Okay. So it's something I did recently that y'all will see on TV coming up soon. And then I stood right there. Like I was Daniel in the lion's den. Looked them straight in the eyes. So, you know, Whitney Houston said it takes a lot of faith in God to have confidence in yourself. So every time when I'm talking about the audacity of confidence, I'm really talking about faith. I'm really talking about having enough faith in yourself to trust in the vision that God gave you. And they say when he knocks on the door, you're supposed to answer it. And when I went to my great grandmother originally, who's 
passed now when she was a saint. And I told her the vision that God gave me and told me to quit my job and all this and that. And I was crying tears, crying tears because I couldn't sit still at work. God just wouldn't even let me sit still. And my great grandmother said, what make you think you have a choice? It's written. And I just fell out on the floor and cried for another three hours and got up and realized this was my life. I did not have a choice. This is what I was going to be doing with my life as a vessel for God. And mind you, my life started with a vision from God. I received a vision from God when I was six years old, sitting on my great grandmother's steps. And my whole life was told to me. And so everything I've done has not been for me or even my own path or destiny. It's been what God told me was going to happen. And every time it's so unbelievable, the vision that he showed me. But everything has come to pass. Everything has come to pass. And so they say he might not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Ladies and gentlemen, Angel Rich. Angel Rich.